Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, September 18, 2022. It focuses on God's invitation to put selfishness aside. The message to all who will listen is disciples of Jesus deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. It's uh, great to be here today, and we get the awesome privilege of going to God's Word and letting it form us as the Spirit speaks to us. So let's pray, because we need to get ourselves centered down and focused, all right? Let's do that. God, I thank you that you are here, and your Word is going to accomplish in us through your Spirit's power exactly what you want to accomplish through it. Help us to hear you. Amen. I ate an entire large pan pizza at Pizza Hut once. I and some friends were visiting Great Bend and I was hungry, obviously. So I just kept shoveling piece after piece after piece into my mouth till the pan was emptied and my plate was clean. Just kind of happened. I don't remember much else about that evening. I ate the eight slices, and we went back to Maxville, where I was serving as a youth pastor at the Christian church there in Maxville. I don't recall having any stomach issues that night. I may have had an iron gut back in the day. If I tried to repeat this feat now, I would be up all night long. (laughs) Earlier in life, I've been told I was served last at family meals. If I was offered a bowl or a platter of food before the rest had their chance at it, There wouldn't be enough for my mom or dad or my siblings. I don't remember this phase, but I trust people who have told me. I guess I was kind of a hog. (laughs) Though I've still got room to improve, I am less gluttonous, less greedy, less self-focused than I was in middle school or high school or college or early adulthood. I've reduced my serving sizes, and I am more than happy to take the last place in line at potlucks, except in July when I'm forced to go to the front because it's my birthday month, or in August when I'm forced to go to the front because it's my anniversary month, or in October when it's Pastor Appreciation Month because just make me go to the front. (laughs) I preached a sermon on gluttony once, many years ago. I think on the same Sunday, I printed a very special bulletin for someone in the church whose name was Bill. He always joked about dealing with the sin of gluttony, and so I printed a single bulletin, put it on the bottom of the stack so I could pull it off the bottom and hand it to him, that had a prayer request that said, pray for Bill as he tries to overcome the sin of gluttony. He giggled a bit when he read it. Selfishness isn't just about food, though, is it? There's a wide variety of self-centered behaviors, piling up mounds of money just to spend it on yourself, buying pallets of toilet paper when there's a shortage, taking the front pew at church from others who really want to sit there but have to take a back seat. (laughs) So selfish. Is there any selfishness in you? Pray this prayer and ask God to help you to see the truth as we go forward. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way 
everlasting. We all deal with things in our inner being which we wish weren't there. One of the most common things that we deal with is this thing we call selfishness. We want what we want and we want it now, that, and we don't want anyone to take away what we already have. Mine is not just what toddlers shout. Adults do it too, although not necessarily allowed. You've been on the internet, you've seen posts, folks demanding their rights, folks pointing fingers at those that they think are a threat to their wealth, the wealth that they have amassed and it's their right to keep. Let me read Mark's account of an incident from Jesus' life which shows the kind of behavior I'm talking about. The way Jesus speaks to the man in the story is convicting. I wonder every single time I read it what I'm supposed to do in response. The passage I'm talking about is in Mark 10. It begins at verse 17 and runs through verse 27. Mark 10, 17 to 27. This whole passage tells the story of a man who asked a simple enough question about inheriting eternal life and got more in response from Jesus than he actually wanted. We're going to take this in two sections, so read with me the first section, which is Mark 10, 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. First things first, what does it take to inherit eternal life? Is it about doing the right things? Is it gained by good works? No. Good works, no matter how kind and beautiful that they may be, don't get you in. You can't earn your way into heaven by doing anything. Eternal life isn't gained that way. Listen to what Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 10. You're going to be jumping back and forth in your Bible, so get your, yourself ready here. Listen to what Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians 2. In the first 10 verses of this chapter, he makes it plain how we gain salvation. Hear God's word to you. This is Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. As for you, and he's talking to the church here, all of us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. How do you gain salvation? You gain it by grace, God's favor which you cannot gain by working. You gain it by believing, and God gives it not on the basis of brownie points earned, but on the basis of faith in Jesus. What's the purpose of good works? To show God's goodness to the world. You see it in verse 10. To show, to express those things that God prepared you in advance, to show his glory, to point people to him. They are evidence of the salvation that you've received by grace through faith in Jesus. They are evidence of the Spirit of God within you. Now, can somebody who has no faith do good things? Sure. They can do things that we would define as good, kind things. There are many kind and generous people who have rejected Jesus as Lord. The difference is this. The works of those who reject God point people to themselves. They shout, look at me. They write big, huge checks and hand them out to people. They make sure that there's a press release if their foundation's going to give money to somebody. In contrast, the works inspired by and empowered by God's goodness and love point others to him. They bring glory to God. Now, I'm not saying that occasionally we might not try to get a little pat on the back. We might fall into that fleshly thing. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it's about bringing glory to God. One more quick passage before we talk more about the story of the man Jesus has called to give up his wealth. In Matthew 5, we have this from Jesus. It's in verses 14 to 16. Listen to what our master says about us. Hear God's word from Matthew 5, 14 to 16. He's speaking to those who are going to follow him, and he says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. When you do good things, who gets the credit? Where are people's eyes directed? God, help us to bring glory to you. Help us not to bring focus on ourselves to all glory and praise go to him, right? Now all this begs the question, why did Jesus, in verse 19, bring up all those laws when asked what it took to gain eternal life? Listen to him. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. This is among the first things Jesus says after the man has posed his question about eternal life and what he needs to do to gain it. Is Jesus answering the question or is he setting things up for a yet to be revealed answer? I don't know for sure what Jesus was doing. His thoughts and ways are far above mine, far above any of ours. He knows what's in the man's heart. Without asking, he knows the idols that each of us has locked away in the deep recesses of our souls. He knows this young man deeply. He knows his dark secrets. He knows every desire of his heart. He knows every stray thought, and he loves him. 
Did you catch that in verse 21? Jesus looked at him and loved him. I don't know if this man had in fact lived as spotless a life as he thought he had. I'm willing to accept his word at face value that he was a pretty good guy, that he had not done the things that Jesus mentioned. He's lived his life in an upright manner. He hasn't killed anybody, hasn't committed adultery or stolen from his neighbor. He's not lied to protect himself or harm another. He's not defrauded anyone in his business dealings. He's honored his parents. I'm willing to accept that he's done pretty good. If I met this guy, if you met this guy, we would probably watch him interact with others and we would say he was a good guy. And we'd be wrong. Go back to verse 18. Listen to the first words Jesus said in response to the man. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. There is no one good except God. Not you, not me. Not your neighbor, no one except God. Paul affirms this truth in Romans 3, 10 to 20, using multiple phrases from the Old Testament. He proves what Jesus said to the man before him in Mark 10. Listen to Romans 3, 10 to 20. If you look at it, you can see the quotation marks. You can tell you there's references probably in your Bible. These are all quotes from the Hebrew Bible, from the Bible that Jesus was using. This is all stuff that the people hearing or reading this, those who are Jewish, would have known. It's just showing that this is what God's been saying all the time. As it is written, we're in verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. No one is good. Not you, not me, not your great Aunt Ruth. Again, we run up against the truth that no one can be saved by their good works. So it seems most likely that Jesus, knowing what is in the man's heart, is setting things up so that this man can see the truth. Jesus wants to expose sin so the man will depend on him rather than on himself or on his wealth. And isn't the invitation he issues after the man affirms his own goodness, isn't that the invitation he issues? As soon as the words are out of his mouth, all these I have kept since I was a boy, Jesus lays it out for him. He reveals what the man lacks by issuing this invitation. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, we tend to fix on the sell everything part and miss the welcoming, come follow me. We focus on give to the poor and miss out on the promise that there's a treasure in heaven, which is going to be a whole lot better than any money you got. Right? You believe that? Really? I gotta deal with that once in a while, don't you? Like, I'm not sure that I act like I think money is less important than treasures in heaven sometimes. 
Are we frightfully close in heart to this man? We want eternal life because eternity without Jesus sounds pretty awful. We all know hell is not attractive. We like the idea of following Jesus as long as it doesn't cost us too much. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Ouch. More or less, that's what he says. Or how he acts. This is why the man walks away sad. He knew following Jesus was costly and he wasn't willing to pay the price. He wanted eternal life, but not that much. How much do you want eternal life? What does your level of generosity toward others say about your faith in God? I stumble far too often when it comes to giving up my stuff, my money, to help others. I do what's godly sometimes, and other times I just screw things up mightily. And I act selfishly. God, help me hear your voice and give me a generous heart. Let's read a bit more of Mark's account now. We're ready for verses 23 to 27. I encourage you to follow along as I read more challenging words from Jesus' mouth. Again, this is Mark 10, 23 to 27. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. There's good news here. Really, there is. Really good news. As hard as it is to face the fact that at the root we are as selfish as this man was, there is hope for us. What we find impossible, giving up everything to follow, God can make happen. He can save stingy, self-centered folks like you and me. It's not impossible for him. All things are possible with God. That's what he's saying. Even though it's difficult for the rich to get into the kingdom, God can bring it about. If you and I will follow him, turning over our shortcomings and our sins, asking for help, our God can save us. I'm talking about more than, than heaven. I'm talking about power to live for him here. Strength to say no to sin. Salvation is not about heaven alone. It's also about living for Jesus, living like Jesus in the here and now. Can you do that? Not on your own. I can't either, but we can, each and every one of us who's given ourselves to Jesus, grow and mature and become more like him as the days go by. We can because the Spirit of God lives in us and he is transforming us. Paul, early in his letter to the church in Philippi, wrote of his thanks for them. It's similar to the prayer of thanksgiving that we talked about in Ephesians a few weeks ago. Listen to how Paul prays for the church in Philippians 1, 6 through 11. Actually, in 3 through 11. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Paul is sure that God can do everything his people need him to do. He is, Paul assures us, able to bring to completion what he started. God is going to make them more and more loving. He's going to give them deeper insights. He's going to make the righteousness of Christ in them show on the outside. Why? Because he's God. He is all-powerful. He's more than able. All things are possible with God. We read that earlier, right? What you and I cannot change, our self-centered nature, which works itself out in selfish actions, God can change. He can change and transform us if we will accept his invitation. Come follow me. I'm not sure the man who came to Jesus in Mark 10 heard those words. He heard the sell everything you've got and give it to the poor, but did he hear this? Come follow me. We're going to leave Mark now and make a quick stopover in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. In this passage, Jesus is talking with the 12 about what it means to be a follower of his. What he said is not easy. It's hard. It calls on those who hear it to count the cost in the same way that Jesus' words in Mark 10 do. So listen to what Jesus says to the dozen men he's invited to follow him closely. Know that his words to these men are for you and for me, because we're disciples too. They're an invitation that Jesus has put out there for all of his followers. I'm reading Jesus' words from Luke 9, 23 to 26 right now. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Look over those words. Respond to them. Hear Jesus telling you what it will cost to follow. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow. Let me share a few words from Fresh Eyes on Famous Bible Saints, a book that we're about to start studying on Wednesday night. I think the author of this book, Doug Newton, says what you and I need to hear in a section of chapter one entitled, The Cross Occurs Daily. So listen to what he writes. We face choices every day to give up some things we may never regain. Time, money, credit, to provide something others may never deserve. Grace, forgiveness, a second chance. That's the cross. How do you know when you've arrived at one of these daily take-up-your-cross moments? Your insides will resonate and moan with a single question. Why should I have to be the one? Skipping down a bit. 
Your internal sense of justice instantly highlights the unfairness. I wasn't the one who made the mistake. I'm not the one to blame. We reasonably fear enabling mistreatment or worse. I always have to make up for what she doesn't do. I'm the one always bending over backward. He never says he's sorry. If we ever make up, it's because I initiated. She almost always misses her deadline. Then I'm left with too little time and I look bad. But there's no way around it. The true cross of Jesus calls you to lose what you may never regain, to give what others may never deserve. And perhaps, but only perhaps, others will see the love of God demonstrated through your grace. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow. It's not about dying on a cross, literally, or dying for Christ. It's dying to yourself and allowing God to live through you as you follow him. Consider in the next few moments Jesus' invitation. Lose your life to save it. Deny yourself to bring God glory. God, we are really good at focusing on ourselves, of looking out for number one, of demanding our rights, and not very good at denying ourselves, not very good at taking up our cross and following you. We need you. God, I pray that you'd help us live for you and for your glory this week. Give us opportunities to express your love in practical ways. Give us opportunities to give ourselves and our wealth and whatever else you need us to give away. Help us, give us opportunities to do that this week so that the world holds less for us and that you're everything. We hear you calling, come follow me. Help us to be willing to do whatever it is that you would ask of us this week as we follow. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.